Well, it's good to see you all excited to be in uh, God's Word this morning. If you want to start turning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 6 uh, this morning. And I apologize if I sound a little bit nasally. I've been battling a, a cold uh, th- this week. It was funny, there's a, a woman in our church named Emily Guido that was serving in our uh, office this week, and she knew on uh, Wednesday that I was uh, had a cold, and so she on Thursday... She comes in with this bag full of home remedies. I've never put more weird things in my system in my entire life, so it's not from a lack of effort if I still have uh, a nasal sound here this morning. But uh, anyway, excited to be studying uh, through the book of Acts, and hopefully you've been blessed by this like I have. We've been working through the story of the church, and if you remember last week, John spent some time talking about literally some growing pains that arose within the church as it's kind of expanding and building up. And what the major issue last week, if you remember, the major issue is there's some debate over the distribution of food to the poor. And I love uh, because you can use statements like, yeah, the, the apostles, they put together a new infrastructure to make sure that this need was met. Basically, what the infrastructure was, if we're going to summarize last week's section of Scripture, they said, yeah, that's a problem. You should fix it. That's basically what they said. They gave back power to the people. They said, you determine who are some worthy people amongst this church that would be able to help with this process of distributing the food. So basically, they put it back on the people saying, you solve it, power to the people And I found great encouragement in that because really that's what we try to do as a church here. You'll notice sometimes when someone comes to me, they'll say like, I have this great idea of something that you guys should do at ABF. I'm like, I I listen to them and I'm like, "That's, that's a fantastic idea. You should do that at ABF. That's my response. And some of you have been on the receiving end of that response, trying to give ownership because we're not just assembling where the leaders do all the work. We're a church where everybody rolls up their sleeves and uses their gift for God's glory. And what you'll notice is the trend is when they got that right, when they made that adjustment and the people responded appropriately, God continued advancing the church forward. And you start to see this trend in the book of Acts that literally there's some kind of opposition or something that the church runs into. It's difficult. They make it through that. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They make it on the other side of that. Then God advances the church. They take new ground, many new people coming to Christ. Well, this last week, they get things right. They get things organized. And God still keeps blessing and advancing his church because why? Because it's an unstoppable church. It's an unstoppable church. Last week, we saw something a little bit unique in the response, though, is after they got this right, look in verse 7, just as we're starting here, and it says, and a great many of the priests became obedient to faith. I find that fascinating that it wasn't just the, the common folks that are embracing Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now, it's literally breaching the walls of the religious establishment. So it shouldn't shock us as the grip of the current leaders of that time is loosening that all of a sudden there's going to be a degree of persecution like never before. We're going to see now in the story of Stephen as that starts to to build and starts to build uh, towards just an amplified persecution within the church. Stephen's our new character this morning up until now. We've been mostly talking about Peter and some of his bold moves and responses in the book of Acts. Really, in Acts, you have three primary characters. You have Peter first, 
Now we're introduced to, Peter, to Stephen, who is just a short time that he has a, a ministry. We're going to see how critical it is for advancing the gospel. But then it'll move to Saul, who becomes Paul. So really just those three different individuals. But although Stephen's ministry is short, very influential in God's ultimate desire to literally reach the world for Jesus Christ. I think it's fascinating right after the, the church decides, it's kind of like a popularity contest in a sense. They said, hey, you pick who meets these qualifications and you decide who the deacons are going to be. Do you remember this from last week? And they chose Stephen and right after that, they decided to pray over them. I thought that was beautiful as the apostles are committing them to prayer. And I think it was very fitting that they were well prayed up because Stephen's about to face the question that I would suggest many of us fear how we would respond to this if it ever arose in our lifetime. The question is this, would you die for your faith? Would you die for your faith? Have you ever wondered that? How would I respond if my life was literally on the line? We're going to see that in Stephen here this morning as the things are amplifying, the tension is, is rising. But I would suggest before we can ever answer that question, would I die for Jesus? The better question, and maybe the more pertinent question in times of peace, if you will, is will I live for Jesus? Not will I die for Jesus, will I live? Will I be literally fully devoted to Him, boldly proclaiming Him in our circles of influence? That's the question I have for us this morning. Stephen, I would suggest, did. And we're going to see in our text this morning that there's some expectations, if we do, that we're going to run into some walls in the process. Let me pray as we dive into this important section of Scripture. Lord, we thank you this morning for this chance to study your word and even the freedom to do that without fear of persecution, that we can freely gather and celebrate you, God. We thank you for that gift this morning. We ask that you teach us through this text, that you'd stretch our understanding of, of really what that looks like to be a devoted follower of Jesus Christ, one that's living and allowing uh, your word to flow through us, that we're taking opportunities of of uh, influencing our neighbors and taking risks and conversations that we're boldly proclaiming you naturally because of what you've done in our life. I pray that you teach us through this text. I'd be small. You'd be great. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So hopefully we're all turned there. We're in chapter 6 of the book of Acts and starting in verse 8 and again going through these different expectations for those of us that are devoted. This first one is that faithful ministry puts a target on us. I'll explain, but let me read this first verse. Verse 8, And Stephen, who we're talking about, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. It's the pr pretty brief description of our, his ministry. We don't have a whole lot more than that to go off of, but really, isn't that something that any of us would love to have said about ourselves? First off, that idea of being full of grace. What an awesome description if we had that associated with us, full of grace. Not just somebody that basks in it, because all of us love to bask in grace, like the whole idea of when we've blown it, we're like, come on, give me some grace. But how about the extenders of grace? Ones that, that extend grace to those around them, that, that aren't just on the receiving end, willing to pass it on to others. Stephen being known for that. Also being described as being full of grace and power. 
The word there used for power isn't talking about like strength. He wasn't like winning a, any kind of weightlifting contest. It's the word dunamis, which actually means supernatural or dynamic power from the Holy Spirit. So that's what set him apart is the degree of his life was submitted to the Holy Spirit working in him. In other words, he was a pawn for Jesus. He's like, man, whatever, I'm ready to go. And because of that willingness, you see there that God's doing the amazing, the miraculous through his life. Up until this point, we've only heard about the apostles doing any miracles or, or anything supernatural. Now we're starting to see it's expanding. God's like, man, I'll, I'll use whatever instrument. I'm not bound or put in a box the New Testament only has three different people mentioning doing miracles other than the apostles, Stephen being one of them, Philip and Barnabas. Pretty cool thing here. God's choosing to use him to do the miraculous. The short-lived ministry, the description there, but definitely a man of influence. You see, what happens, though, is this is a, a takeaway, is whenever we roll up our sleeves and engage in ministry, that literally puts a mark, a target on us, whether we realize it or not. Maybe that's not something we necessarily knew. You're like, man, I just served in the children's ministry. I didn't know I had a mark on me. I didn't know I was a target. But here's the, the reason why that's true. Because what's going on behind the scenes? There's a supernatural battle that happens for every single soul on this planet. And you see what happens is Satan's strategy before we embrace Jesus Christ is to do everything possible to distract and keep someone from accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Once somebody has accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, his strategy shifts. He wants to do everything possible to keep that person silent and from having any kind of influence on their circle, their peers, their friends, their neighbors. He wants to keep us quiet. So either way, it's a double whammy. If we've embraced Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, and we're vocal and bold about our, our faith and minister, man, guess what that does? That puts a target on you. And what the enemy does to unwilling non, or unknowing non-believers is he uses them as pawns to oppose us. You recognize this? Uses them as, pa as pawns to, to rise up and oppose what God's doing in and through the believer's life. So here's the secret. Is you can avoid having any target on your life. Did you know that? You can avoid. You can, you can live an opposition-free life. The best way to do that is to completely stay silent about Jesus Christ. Never bring him up. Never talk about them. Never engage with anyone about them. Stay silent. That's how you can live an opposition-free life, but I would suggest not a very fulfilling one. You can quietly kind of go below the radar and never raise any kind of a, a stir, but here we see that's not what the life of someone devoted to Christ looks like. Stephen had plenty of opposition. Take a look in verse 9. It, it says, says this, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. 
See, what's happening is in that day and time, synagogues, they had about approximately, they estimated about 480 synagogues in Jerusalem at that time. Those were places where people came together for worship in that area. Basically, those synagogues were broken down by cultural preferences, linguistic reasons, all those similar today where you've got a kind of a, a church, churches based on different ethnic groups, all of that. There, it was similar, 480 of those. What it's mentioning is three different gr- or groups from three different synagogues. The freedmen, which was, were, were Jewish uh, prior or descendants of slaves uh, that were now free and living in Jerusalem. Cyrenians, which were major cities in Africa that had a large Jewish population. And Cilicia in Asia represented present-day Turkey. So gr- groups that had that background were all coming together to what? oppose and debate with Stephen. Why? Because Stephen had a target on his back. He had a target on his back, and one of the expectations when we're boldly proclaiming Christ is that there's a target, and that it will stir up debate. Anybody notice that even in your own life? And it, people aren't just like, oh, yeah, that's, that, I, I fully embrace what you believe about Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's not a common response. That's a, a usually more of a, a debate. I um, remember some years back when I was a young adults pastor, I had a, a guy that was newer to our, our ministry, and he attended. And after the, the service that we had, he came up to me, and he's like, hey, Scott, is there any chance that we could uh, sit down and uh, and, and have some Starbucks, and I, I have a bunch of questions about faith and about Jesus, and this was like honey to a pastor's lips. So you're just like, are you kidding me? Absolutely. Let's, let's get together. Let's talk. Let's sit down and, and chat about this. It's going to be awesome, and so I'm all excited, looking forward to this get-together, and uh, we sit down. We get to Starbucks, and I see, as soon as we sat down, he pulled out this sheet that had a list of question after question. But here's the thing, is I noticed not very long into that conversation that he wasn't on an information gathering adventure. He was looking to debate, to argue. And any response that I have, I was like, man, he's not even literally listening to what I have to say. He's thinking, you can see his wheels turning. He's moving on to what his next question is. Because why? He's trying to win an argument. Here's the the challenging thing for Stephen. Probably at first he's like, nice, a a conversation with some brothers uh, that are trying to discover more about Jesus. As he gets into it, you're like, oh, this is a challenge. And that's one of the things that we learn about debate is usually on the other end of debate. It's not somebody like, oh, yes, those were great points, Scott. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to embrace Jesus Christ now as, as Lord and Savior. Usually, if it's a debate, that's not it. It's literally opposition that you're getting sucked into. You see here, though, I love the description of Stephen. What does it say how he responded, how he, he handled it? He has a pretty awesome, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. This idea of not withstand and it gives this description of the spirit in which he was speaking. Do you see that's a capital S spirit? It's not just like high energy that he had. Literally, the Holy Spirit was guiding and directing his words. We pointed to this passage in Matthew a couple of weeks ago. I love this description. Jesus promised this. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. 
For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. What an awesome privilege. A lot of times we get freaked out and you're like, I don't know. If I talk about Jesus, I'm not quite sure what words I'd say. I'm, I'm newer to all this. And, and God's like, hey, don't worry about it. Just open your mouth. I'll speak through you and for you. It's an awesome reality in the life of a devoted follower. But to me, part of it is like, hey, wait a second. So these guys, they've been watching him for a while. They've been watching Stephen. He, he's been doing the miraculous. They just had some conversations with him, and, and literally he beat him up in the, in the debate. He, he clearly won that. Why is it that they don't just submit and say, man, you're right. Man, this, Jesus is the Messiah. I recognize that. Man, I, I, my, my sin has separated me from God. I, I do need to be reconnected in relationship with God, and I need a Messiah. And Jesus fits all of the qualifications that you clearly presented. Why, why didn't that happen? Why isn't that? Here's the other part. When I'm talking about this spiritual battle behind the scenes, Scripture says that the unbeliever, the person that's rejecting or opposing this, is literally blind to that truth. Did you know that? There's literally a supernatural thing happening behind the scenes. 2 Corinthians 4.4, look at this. In their case, referring to the non-believer, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For the person that you're debating with and you're like, man, why, are, why can't they just seem to get it? Because there's a supernatural thing going on here, literally blinded. And when someone can't see it, they're going to debate with you about it. They're like, I, I didn't see it. I, I can't see it. I'm gonna, I, all I can do is argue because I'm unable to see. So that's what he's dealing with. And for us to have similar compassion for the person we're engaging with, hey, man, just, just understand they, they can't see it. They, 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 I, I wish they could. It should move more of our evangelistic efforts towards prayer. God, please take the blinders off, allow it to sink in, allow them to embrace this. It's only possible, God, if you do that. Make yourself irresistible in that person's life. So here, they're, they're expe we're expecting opposition, we're expecting debate. You, you see here that that's part of the process. And here's the problem, is it doesn't just st stop with a friendly debate. Look in verse 11. Then they secretly investigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and, and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. Things are heightening here. Do you see that? And have you ever heard a, a child at some point in your life, whether it's yours or somebody else's child, say these simple words, that's not fair. Have you ever heard that? Usually it's more like the tone, that's not fair. In fact, try it with the person next to you. Just say it. So, so right now, try it out. Go ahead. Don't pretend like you haven't said that in the last month. This isn't just a children's thing. It's literally a common occurrence for the person that's opposing the gospel is saying, that's not fair. Here's the, th the reminder. I, I see that as a teachable moment in my own family's life. When, uh, when my kids say that, I'm like, you're right. That's not fair. And it's good that you learn now that life isn't 
fair. Anybody ever had that conversation with somebody? It's important that you recognize that not everybody's playing fair. Not everybody's playing by the rules you think they should be. Here, you realize that opposition, he's maybe walking away, Stephen feeling like, oh man, I felt like that went well. I felt like I clearly presented the gospel, not knowing that our opposition isn't interested in following any set of rules. You see here what the, what's going on. What do they do? It says that they secretly instigated men who said, the word instigated there means suggest or prompt with an evil motive. Suggest or prompt with an evil motive. They're stirring the pot. Stirring the pot. It's interesting to me how it works with large groups of people. The larger the group of people gets, it seems like, tell me if this isn't true, intelligence goes down as, at the same, as the group gets larger, the intelligence goes smaller. Anybody notice that with large groups of people? They, they, call, they actually have a term for this. They call it mob mentality. Nice job. Mob mentality. This idea that when, when emotions are heightened, then all of a sudden people do things that they wouldn't normally find themselves doing. Anybody attest to that when you're at a sporting event? You're like, what, how did I get into that? Like, where did that, where did that happen? I, imagine with me if I'm sitting at a, at a Cubs game. I'm the only one in the stadium. I'm literally the only fan. They finish, they, they win the game. How weird would it be for me to stand up and just start going, go Cubs, go? I won't keep singing that. But, uh, but imagine how weird that would be because you're like, no, that's what you do when everyone's together. When our combined IQ is in the negative, you know, that, that, that's what happens when you're all combined. That's what happens when emotion moves you to do things you wouldn't typically do. And I wonder, this group that had seen all the miraculous, had heard the, the, the messages of the, the apostles that had been supportive of it, had talked up until this point about them having favor with all the people, all of a sudden, it just takes a little stirring of the pot. You heard what they said about Moses. You heard what they said. And all of a sudden, the group is just following suit. They're like, yeah, you're right. They are bad people. You know, like, wait a second. What, what's going on there? Why all of a sudden the, the change of, uh, of opinion because mob mentality does some pretty crazy things. So opposition didn't follow any, uh, any rules. They bring them and it says seize them. The idea is the same word used other where Places in Scripture have seized like somebody who's under control or, or taken by force. So seize them. All of a sudden, the, the, remember they were hesitant to arrest the apostles before because they're like, oh, man, we don't want to upset the people. Not anymore. Everybody's stirred up and emotions are going. Now they're easily able to take them before the council. The council, you remember, same group, the Sanhedrin. And they've been working overtime lately. They're like, are you kidding me? Are we still dealing with this. Now they want blood. Take a look what it says in verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Find it interesting. They're setting this up perfectly. They've got their fault. You understand how a court system works. Got to have your witnesses. You got, so they've got their witnesses in place. They've got not just one accusation. 
They've got four accusations against them. They're, they're building a seal-proof case. The accusation, he persistently blasphemes the temple. He persistently blasphemes the law of Moses. He claimed Jesus would destroy the temple. He asserted Jesus would change the customs of Moses. All four of those, this is important to understand, all four of those are punishable by death. So, they're backing Stephen into a corner that they know he's got no chance to come out of. They, they're not playing by the rules. They're not being fair in any of this. And they're like, you know what? All we have to do is just twist a little bit of what he said. Isn't that what makes the best lie anyway? Anybody played that game before when you're growing up, Two Truths and a Lie? And they were, or you write down two things that actually happened about to you, and then the third one you make up, and then people have to decide which ones are true and which ones are lies. Is this a game we've played, or am I uh, introducing us to something new? We'll play it right now. Let's write. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but, but this is something that you play. And what you discover over time after playing that game for a while is what makes a successful lie. It's real close to the truth. It's just some slight variances, and, and you're like, oh, that's going to get them. And you're thinking to yourself, it's funny the games that we play, and we're like, at the end of that, you're celebrating the person. Man, you did great. You're the best liar ever. And we wear that like a badge of honor. Kind of funny. But uh, anyway, side note. But here's the idea. Most likely, they're not coming up with stuff that was never said. They're taking what was said and just a slight twist on it. Isn't that how the enemy works? Just a, a slight variance. You see, Jesus did actually say that he was going to tear down the temple and rebuild it in three days. Did you guys know that? He, he talked about that. In fact, it, he, he mentions it in, um, where's the passage there? Uh, John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. What was he talking about? Himself. He's talking about himself. He's saying, hey, if you take me down... I'm going to come back in three days. Did he go on to do that? Absolutely. Was he talking about their literal temple? No. So do you see that twist? It was literally the same accusation, which is kind of funny, that they brought about Jesus. Now they're bringing back. They're like, that worked with him. Uh, they're bringing it back to use it against Stephen. We don't know which other ones they twisted, but most likely related to things that had to do with the law and about the temple. All of a sudden, Stephen thinks he's sharing the good news. Great news, guys. We're no longer bound by this sacrificial system because Jesus Christ was the ultimate sacrifice. And they're taking that. See, he just keeps talking about our system being broke. And so they twisted his words, got people fired up. And what I love about this, look at his response. We'll end with this, verse 15. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face, what does it say there, of an angel. Pretty cool description. Now, if you think about that for a moment, when you've had false accusations about you, when a boss blames you for something you had nothing to do with, that was not your fault you lost the TPS reports. When, you're, when you have a, a find out that your friend or somebody you care about is talking behind your back saying things that you did not say, would that be the description of your face? Would they say, man, after all those false accusations, just or he or she, they, they just look like an angel. 
Ah, I wouldn't say that's always the description. Adrian, was that a description of my face? Uh, not always, no. Uh, but but here, here's what I'd suggest has to do or relates to Stephen in this case. What did we learn at the very beginning, this description of him? That he was full of what? Full of grace. Full of grace. All of a sudden, when the Holy Spirit has reign in our lives, when, when he's guided and directing this ship, when he, he, he's governing and leading in our life, all of a sudden, the non-believer that's opposing us isn't the enemy. All of a sudden, they're not the opposition. All of a sudden, it moves towards compassion. We're going to see at the end of Stephen's life, that was his prayer, was, oh, don't hold this against them. God, they're, they're, they're lost. They're blind. They can't see. And I, I, I love that that's the route that he goes. He's not, he's, not trying, he's not getting angry, trying to defend himself or argue or debate. He's just like, you know, I'm just taking it because, man, I, I recognize you're so lost. Remember when Jesus was coming in for the triumphal entry, how in the middle of them cheering and chanting his name, he's like, oh, man, how, how he's, he's literally crying, it says. How long I just wanted to gather you like a mother hen does under her wing with her chicks. Man, my heart breaks for these people. This is Stephen. When you're full of grace, you're not angry at the world around you. You're compassionate towards them. And I love this affirmation that God gives by, we, we don't know exactly what's going on here. What's that mean, like the face of an angel? What I would say is it's definitely not normal. Maybe it's a little something like what we saw with Moses. You remember when he first came down from spending time out, out, up on Mount Sinai, and he's given the, 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 tem, the, the uh, tablets with the law on it. Exodus 34, 29 describes that. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. I wonder if that, to a degree, is the, the testimony here. God's, God's confirming and affirming the authenticity of Stephen's message, just by the glow on his face. Just wonder what that looks like in, a, in our lives. What, what, when we respond to opposition, when we choose to allow the Spirit to, to reign, when we're full of grace rather than full of defense or arguing, how God can use us as a similar testimony. And really, if you think about it, at the end of the days, isn't that the one person that you're concerned about their opinion about you? When this all winds down, and I promise you it's all going to wind down, death rate's still at 100%, I've heard. Like that, When this all winds down, whose opinion are we concerned with? Whose opinion are you, are you living for? Who's, who, who are you interested in pleasing? I, I was thinking about that. My son's in junior high right now, and there's a lot of pressure to be concerned about what other people in that age group. I remember in junior high, I was so interested in being cool and making sure that everybody around me I was liked and all this. And guess where those people are now? Your guess is as good as mine. I have no idea. You, like, you don't remember any of that. And I have this suspicion that at the end of our days, when we're looking back, your only concern isn't what somebody thought about you in junior high or as a, you're starting your new business or whatever. Your one concern is, what did God think about my testimony? What did he think about my boldness? And what, what are his thoughts? I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned with the rest. I think this is a wonderful reminder, this whole text, of what it, it looks like, what we should expect as a devoted follower. Expectations. We shouldn't be shocked by opposition. We shouldn't be 
shocked by a target. But man, I'll tell you what, I don't think any of us would ever regret a life committed and devoted to Him. And whatever the opposition, you're like, well, it was all worth it because I have the affirmation of the only one who matters. Let me pray as we wrap up. God, I thank you for this text and just what a picture of someone submitted to you and really what that looks like in our lives. God, I pray as we're trying to navigate through this and maybe in a, in a life where there's not the same degree of opposition, but I'm confident even in today's world that we're not necessarily well received when we boldly proclaim Christ. Pray for a confidence that comes from you. I pray for a confidence that comes knowing that you stand and support us when we support the truth of your word. We ask that we'd have opportunity even going into this week ahead. There's usually more and more conversations around the dinner table and with family and friends. I pray that there'd be a boldness and a confidence in you even going into this week ahead, God, that we'd be concerned about your thoughts, not others' thoughts. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, quick story just as we're walking out. Remember when I said when somebody comes to me with ideas and I'm just like, oh, that's awesome, you should do that. That recently happened with a, a girl in our church named Michelle. She had this idea, what if we had a gift during Thanksgiving that we could bless people with and uh, it, we could attach an invite to the church? Well, those chocolates out there were that idea. I said, Michelle, that'd be awesome, you should do that. And she did. So make sure before you leave today, you grab some of those chocolates to bless somebody in your circle of influence, okay? God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving.